0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you would open your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Today we come to the Final message in our study of Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. And this has been a long journey through these many months, and it's given us an opportunity to discover the heart of the apostle and his care for converts that he made in this part of the Roman Empire. Although Paul didn't spend very much time in the city of Thessalonica, there was a special bond that developed between him and the people. So it appears that this church was among Paul's favorites. He remembered them when he taught other churches and used them as an example for them to follow. And I think one of the chief remembrances that he had of this church is how readily they received the word of God. In the second chapter, he wrote, For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh in you that believe. Uh, When a pastor has people that eagerly and happily receive the truth, that's very encouraging to his ministry. Often the truth, finding out truth, tortures the soul. We find out what we've done wrong until we realize how good that truth is for us. Truth can be very hard on the flesh, and yet when people are willing to take truth to their heart and be transformed by it, that's when you know that you have a very special group of people. When I can preach against sin and encourage you to give up the sins that hinder your spiritual growth, to be able to do that and not have you to be angry with me, then I know that God's working. I know that the Holy Spirit is using His Word to sanctify you and make you the followers of Jesus Christ that you need to be. Paul told these people that he wanted them to be sanctified completely through and through. He he wanted them to to make this radical change in their lives from what they were before. In Thessalonica, they were pagan idolaters. They were in a religion that was grossly immoral and satisfying to the flesh. But they turned from those evil ways to serve the living God. Often their desire to serve Christ conflicted with family and with friends. And for certain, uh, the government was against them, society was against them, and they were always under uh, constant persecution. But this was a church that was willing to endure it. They heard the word of God. They received it gladly. They were saved. And the Holy Spirit was in them to strengthen them. So this letter has really been a wonderful experience to read and study. We are strengthened by the examples that we find here of faith, love, and hope. And we've seen that emphasized repeatedly throughout this letter, and I emphasize it again because those are three of the most critical areas of Christian faith, of the Christian life, faith, love, and hope. So this has been a good experience, and it's not just saving faith that we talk of here, but it's a living faith that that leads us into the worship of the Savior and into love for our brothers and into a living hope of Christ's return. Now, as Paul closes his communication with this church, these are his final remarks. We've, we've been through, in this letter, a study of end times. There's a study of worship in the text. There's a study of sanctification in it. And it seems after we've been through those very, very heavy topics that there's really not much left to say. And so we might be tempted just to skip over these last verses in this fifth chapter and then move immediately into the second letter. But what we need to do is to look at this very closely and glean what we can from it because there is no wasted space in God's Word. Every verse that we read has meaning to us and we need to to understand it. All Scripture, the Word of God says, is God breathed and it's profitable for us. And so the Apostle closes the letter this way, beginning in verse number 25. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. As we reflect on the body of this letter, we've discussed some very controversial doctrines. Certainly... Uh, When we discuss the end times, there's a wide spectrum of offerings as to proper interpretations of the second coming of Christ. When we speak of worship, there are differences of opinion as to what worship is and the means by which we are to worship. How we are to conduct ourselves in worship, there are arguments about that. And for sure, whenever we mention doctrines of grace, as Paul does in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, there's an explosion against God's sovereign election and the Bible's teaching of particular redemption. Those are very controversial subjects that often separate believers. But as we come to the end of this letter, um, controversies are set aside. These are very straightforward comments. They only need some consideration from good spiritual insight to glean the available information. And in these three verses, I think that we see three simple unequivocal pleas from the apostle. The first we find in verse number uh, 23, or rather verse number 25. Brethren, pray for us. Now, in his instructions to the leadership of the church, Paul said, in verses 12 and 13 that pastors are to be highly esteemed for the work they do as they labor for the church. Pastors are to be loved, respected, and followed. Now, Paul did mention pastors specifically in this passage, and I explained the reason for that when uh, we studied it, but we're certain that the leadership of pastors is the chief concern. And so Paul said, pray for us, not just for him, but for his two companions, Saul, uh, or rather uh, Silas and, and, and Timothy, who were helpers that also in, uh, instructed the church. Paul was their pastor while he was in Thessalonica, and because he didn't spend much time there, the, the ones that he raised up to be leaders in the church were inexperienced. And so Paul functioned somewhat as their pastor through these letters. He was still advising the church, of course, on what they should do. Now, the last part of this letter... It's been about the church working and surviving and being sanctified as they wait on Christ to return. And with this constant persecution that they were under, how would they survive? How would they get through? How can they still be a good testimony for Christ? And I would submit that their chief protection was their prayers. They have no other means. Christians don't have armies that we call on to help us. We don't have police forces that protect our rights. We don't have weapons that we can fight with, not physical weapons. Our enemies are the spiritual forces of darkness. And so we fight with spiritual weapons and whenever we need help, the power that we call on is the power of the Almighty God. We pray. Our contact with our commander is prayer. And at the head of the list of protections in this plea for prayer is pastors. Satan concentrates his attack on those that lead the church. Now remember, Paul warned the Ephesian elders that as soon as he left, wolves would come to devour the flock. The wolves were apostate teachers that distort the doctrines of the faith. And Paul said, pastors must be aware of that danger. Pastors must be aware that there are people out there that want to destroy the truth. And it's the pastor's job to protect the sheep from the lies of Satan. And he has to feed the flock with the good word of God. He has to make sure that what he teaches is good, solid, spiritual food of the doctrines of Christ and the apostles. So pastors are armed with truth to resist the lies of Satan and his ministers. So the best that you can do for the pastor is to pray for him, that he'll search for the truth, and that he'll protect you from the lie. Well, how might we pray for the pastor in Ways that will most benefit him and the church. Well, I'd like to suggest to you today two major ways to pray. And I ask for your prayers, especially in these two ways. The first is that you pray for the pastor's welfare. Now, if you look at verse number 17, the apostle said, pray without ceasing. Pray always. Pray constantly. Don't stop praying. Now, he means to pray for everything. And in verse 25, I think chief among the prayers of the church as a body is to be in constant prayer for the welfare of the pastor. There are some of you that I stay in constant contact through the week. Some of you I speak with several times during the week and it's only natural that I would speak frequently to leaders in the church. We have much to discuss and so there are emails and texts and phone calls that go on between us. But I'll have to say that one of the calls or texts or emails that I get that's, that are among my favorites is when I hear from Gary. Almost without fail, Gary will tell me that he's been praying for me. He tells me that he's been praying for me. Now, all of you know that Gary is a prayer warrior, and I sense when I speak to him that his prayers for me are a little bit more on the personal side because often his chief concern is the stress that I'm under because of my wife's health. Uh, He's persistent to tell me what you really need to do, pastor, is to take care of yourself. You need to take time for yourself because he knows the psychological aspect of my wife's illness and how uh, that takes a a toll on health care providers. And since I'm my wife's primary provider, there's much to do. Uh, My days are very busy with her and what I need to do for the church. And so he prays for me, and I need that, and I need prayers for, for me to remain healthy and to serve her and the church. And so I know that, that I can't bear the, the stress that I'm under without supernatural support. I dare not enter this pulpit and think that anything that I can do here is with my own strength. I can't do that in the best of times, and I surely can't do it when we have all these other things that are, that are going on. So I'm sure what Paul asked the Philippians, or Thessalonians rather, to do here is to pray for him. And as he did, he included his health. Now we know that Paul was strong spiritually, but weak humanly. There was some sort of ailment that he called his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was, but we do know that there were people who said his bodily presence was weak. Now that might have meant, and some believe, that this meant that Paul was a small, diminutive man not a man with brute strength. It might have been the inability that he had at a strong oratory, that he wasn't really a very good speaker. Or it might have been just this thorn in the flesh, a sickness that made him that way. But this is what he asked for, to pray for his health, pray for the pastor's health. You know, I'm determined that I'm going to preach on Sundays. And there are days that my body says, no. Just stay in bed. Today was one of those days. Not feeling well. The body says, no, you don't really need to go to church. I asked the class this morning, would it be all right if I just laid on the front row with a microphone and taught you from there? There are days that I just don't feel like getting in the pulpit. And I'm not telling you this because I, I seek sympathy from you. In fact, I resist saying this at all because it's, it's a kind of embarrassing to admit weakness. But I tell you this Because there is a real battle at times and because this is one of the things that Paul told the people at Thessalonica. The church must be instructed about these needs because health battles are as real as spiritual battles. You see, the whole body is involved in this fight against Satan. Weakness in the body hinders the ability to fight spiritual battles. Satan uses all of this against us, whatever he can. If that wasn't a real need that we should be concerned with, then the apostles never would have said, pray for the sick. Now, some Sundays when I get up to preach, I'm preaching on adrenaline. Don't feel like preaching, but then I get up on a Sunday morning, not feeling very well. I get ready to come and all of a sudden I find this newfound strength and that pushes me on. And I, and I think that in that adrenaline, there is the Holy Spirit who allows me to concentrate on what I'm doing and not to think about what going, what's going on in my body. Now, again, I don't want you to feel sorry for me, but I want you to pray for me because I can't make it without your prayers. And, and as you're praying for my welfare, pray for my protection. I think that was on Paul's mind too. Every place that he preached, he was in danger of bodily harm. Now, in these past few years, we've all been made very much aware that the preaching from our pulpit is counter-cultural. We're out of step with Northern California, much like the Thessalonians were out of step and were the oddballs in their city. This is a pagan culture that we live in. Did you know that? It's a very pagan culture. This is a very sexually perverse culture, nearly as bad as it was in ancient Thessalonica. We preach against the same sins that made Sodom and Gomorrah ripe for fire to fall down from heaven. And there are complaints about our, our preaching. Some would say, well, that's hate speech. It's conservative and it's moral. And it's, quite frankly, the opposite of this hypocritical, critical, pseudo-tolerant culture. Now, we've heard news of mass shootings in churches and schools and malls and other public places, and that concerns us because everybody out there is against everybody in here, or nearly everybody in here. And they especially hate leaders. They hate pastors who stand in pulpits and preach against their ungodly lifestyles. I know there's some who don't think we need to be concerned about it. Uh, we don't need to be concerned about a gunman entering our church and opening fire. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, why did deacons stand in the back? And I say, well, that's for protection. There's somebody outside next to the door all the time to watch out because there may be a threat. And we think, well, could that happen in in this tolerant city? Or is it just the NRA supporters and the MAGA militia that shoot people? The liberal media would have you believe that, that it's conservatives, that it's Christians that shoot people, when in fact they covered up the motive for a shooting in Cleveland last year. It turned out that the shooter was a left-leaning liberal. They have guns, too. I'm not picking on anybody, but there are people that are crazy. They're crazy, too. And here we are in a minority with very conservative beliefs, and we need protection. And need I remind you that it was false religion that was the cause of Christians, hatred against Christians, and the political processes, that, that's somewhat secondary to this, but the government suspected that Christianity would alter their forms of government. But we continue to preach against sin, and we will, and when we do, that always makes us a target. So I'm saying pray for the safety of preachers that are threatened by the community. A few days ago, I stepped outside of the church, and there was a passing motorist who yelled obscenities at us. Why? Why? Well, he knew that our church supported Israel. I assume that he knew that because conservative Baptists believe that we must be friends with Israel because they are God's chosen people. A few months ago, we had a Rohnert Park police sergeant talk to our deacon board about active shooter training. He never said, don't worry about it. You don't need to be concerned. Those things don't happen here. Nobody in Roner Park is going to harm you. Oh, he said, be prepared. Now, Paul's experience with the hatred of the gospel in that he pled for prayer because he wasn't invincible. He was a God-called apostle, but he was subject to all human weaknesses, so he asked for prayer because he needed prayer. Now, I want you to look in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 1. Here he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. And be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Now, listen, that is, that is a prayer that the gospel wouldn't be hindered. Now, he wanted to be able to preach without reprisal. Now, he was going to preach regardless, but I'm sure that he'd rather preach without the trouble. So he said, pray that we will be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. That that means to be rescued from those who would injure. Pray that we won't be harmed. Pray that those who hate the gospel will not stand against us and not let us preach. Now they, they went ahead and, and preached. And people, you know, they may not attack you with a sword. And they might not attack you with a gun. Sometimes... There are people who stir up strife within the congregation. Sometimes it can be things like the slander of the pastor's reputation. I remember a few years ago, there was a person in the church that tried to harm me by attacking my reputation. That person is now dead, eaten up with cancer. Like Herod Agrippa, who imprisoned Peter, he was eaten up with worms and died. I just remember that when you take my name in vain. I, I, I'm nobody. You know, I'm nobody, but I do stand for Christ. To attack God's man is to attack Christ. I mean, those aren't my words. Those are the words of Jesus himself. He said, whatever you do to God's people, you do to me. A few months ago, we had a fellow who visited our church. And after the sermon, he said, you know, I appreciate that you speak freely. You speak on subjects that others won't touch. They're afraid to preach them. And that's what Paul said that we should pray for. Pray that the word will have free course. Pray that we can preach without fear. Now, preachers shouldn't fear to preach anything in God's word. What happens to me is not most important. Christ is most important. But I'll tell you, I sure do want to live to preach another day, if that's all right with you. So let's just keep on praying about that. Pray for the pastor's welfare. Secondly, pray for the pastor's warfare. This is a battle for spiritual ground. Sometimes Satan gets to me through my welfare, but the way that he most often works is to challenge in spiritual warfare. Some of these are warfare and struggles that you never see. First, there's a battle for the mind. Do you ever struggle picking up your Bible and taking time to read? Are there a thousand things that enter into your mind that you think that you need to do first before you read the word of God? Multiply that a hundred times over and you'll get a sense of what I go through when I sit down to study and write sermons. Satan doesn't want me to preach. And so Satan is always that unwelcome intruder when I sit down to the desk to study. I remember just before I wrote this sermon, um, it was eight o'clock on a Thursday morning. And I always write Sunday morning sermons on Thursday. That's the usual thing. Do you think the devil knows that? Do you think he knows my schedule? Well, it was about 8 o'clock. I was just getting ready to go into the office to begin work. And the phone rang. And I got a terribly disturbing call. And for 35 minutes, I was on the phone. It was very, very deeply troubling news. I can't really share it with you. It was about someone else. But this news really hit me hard. It took away my concentration. My mind wasn't clear. In fact, as I was sitting there getting ready to study, my heart was broken over what I just heard. Why did that call happen at that moment and not in the other 168 hours of the week? Why then? Because Satan knows. And Satan attacks. It's warfare. Pray for my determination. No matter what happens, I've got to preach. So I prayed, and I asked the Holy Spirit to help me. And this probably isn't the best sermon that I'll ever preach because of the warfare, but unbeknownst to the devil, he got caught in his own snare because I got a sermon illustration out of what he did to me. (laughs) So you see, this is a constant battle. I've often, you remember, asked you to pray for my clarity. We're going through much tribulation, and when bad news comes upon top of bad news, that can be overwhelming. And I have to turn it all over to God. And I know this, that the word of God says that the effectual prayers of God's righteous people avail much. God uses prayer to unleash spiritual weapons to fight Satan. Now I think about Israel when they were in the fight against Amalek. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 17, you can see just a wonderful illustration of my point. God sprinkled these little gems throughout Scripture for encouragement and to show how he uses means to accomplish his work. Moses was Israel's leader, and he needed help in the battle against Amalek. This is in Exodus chapter 17, and starting in verse number 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Do you think that God needs a man holding up a staff to conquer his enemies? No. God only needs to speak the word to destroy them all. Now Moses at first probably didn't know that Holding up the staff would cause Israel to prevail. So perhaps he put his hands up and put himself, his hands down, then back up and back down and sort of, sort of observe this phenomenon that was going on. And when it was clear that the staff had to be up over his head or Israel would lose, then what was he to do when he got weary? Well, he needed someone to hold up his hands or all was lost. And so Aaron and her stepped up and they held up his hands and that's for what? That's to show that the man of God needs the support of the people. He can't do it alone. And so this is what you do when you pray for me. You hold up my hands. And I can't get that help any place else because God designed prayer to be the staff that must be held up before him. Prayer is a powerful weapon and we won't win without it. Well, I need to rehearse all Paul's troubles because he preached for Christ. Jews and Gentiles, governors and other politicians, rabbis, false preachers, even Christians gave him trouble. While Paul was sitting in a prison cell in Rome, self-serving preachers took advantage of him and his incarceration sitting in the jail to become more prominent themselves. Paul said, I have all these battles that are going on on the outside. I have all the care of the churches that's on the inside. And yes, this is true. Satan incites church members against the pastor. There's a spiritual battle that goes on from all sides every time I enter the pulpit. So you pray for me because I'm not going to succeed unless you pray. Pray about the warfare, the mental warfare, the preparation for preaching, the negative responses when I must preach issues that resonate poorly with this wicked culture. Understand that every sermon is a battle. It starts the very moment that I pick up pen and paper and the Bible to begin the preparation. And it goes on right through the time that I'm preaching the sermon, and sometimes it follows me right out the door. Often it's at the door. Some irate congregant argues with me. And and let me just mention that experience too. We, We had a member that wanted to debate at the door every Sunday. Always picking on something in the sermon to debate. We had a visitor that I had to threaten to call the police because he showed up many, many times only for this, to critique the sermon and argue my points. Who's behind that? That spiritual warfare. When I'm through with the sermon, it might not be the best. But I know that I've fought my way through it and got it done. And so Satan will come to the door and say to me, You know what, fella? It was at your best and here's what's wrong with it. Every negative comment at the door in a place where it shouldn't be discussed, that's a barb that's tossed by Satan. So pray for my welfare and for my warfare. Now there's another plea um, that takes us away from that thought to a completely different one. In verse number 26, "...greet all the brethren with a holy kiss." Now Paul's next plea is to salute all saints. Now that's quite a different thought, isn't it? That pulls us away from where we were. Now I need to start a whole new sermon. So stick in your seat there for a little while longer. Now let me me forego the obvious at first to say that every member of the church is a part of your family. They are in your family because both you and, and them, they're in the family of God. We're together a family in this church. We act or we should act towards each other as family. So we do things for each other. We pray for each other. We help each other. Now, there are times when people in the community act as if they want me to be their pastor. Now, usually they won't step foot in the church. Sometimes they'll call. Occasionally they'll stop by and they want my help and they want me to do something for them because they're in trouble. And uh, I usually help because that's the Christian thing to do. But the truth is, I'm not connected to them like I am to you. I don't have a family relationship with them. I can't be there for them to satisfy all their felt needs. I'll do what I can as much as I can, but I'm not going to go to the mat for them like I will for you. Paul said to the Corinthians, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. So even if they didn't love him as they should, Paul said, I'll still give everything for you. Why would he do that? Because I think it's a family thing. I don't abandon my family. We're all members of the same body and I think that I'll take care of my body. I'll give you a little story. I don't usually tell stories, but I'll give you this one. Forty years ago, when I was a young man, what would I have been? Seven years old, something like that. Um, But 40 years ago, I was standing on the fender of a truck. I jumped off the truck and I slid my hand down the side of the truck to steady myself. And as I did, my wedding ring got caught on a hook that was on the side of the truck. And as I was going down with all my body weight, that hook hooked into my ring, stretched it out, and cut my finger off. I picked up the finger... And a fellow rushed me to the hospital, and the ER doctor said, well, let me just cut that off, the stub off, and clean it up, and let you go. And I said, well, what about my finger? Can you save it? And he said, no, not at this hospital, and that'd be a lot of trouble too. And I said, well, thanks a lot, doc. Send me someplace that can fix it. So they put me in an ambulance, and they sent me and my finger to the Jewish hospital in Louisville, about 80 miles away, And the Jewish hospital at that time had uh, surgeons that were pioneering hand surgery. And so they reattached my finger. 17 hours in microsurgery, he put that finger back on. I spent nearly a year off of work trying to save a finger. And the story is, my whole point here, I'm going to do everything I can to save my body parts. Now, you know, there's lots of stuff that people do that's against me. And I don't like it. But I'm not going to treat you differently because I'm not going to cut you off. You're part of my family. I know some things that you've said and done. And when you go out the door, you'll never know that I know them because I'm not going to treat you differently. Now, Paul wanted the church to show affection for each other. And because we are a family, we treat each other well, even if we aren't getting along famously all the time. So let's not hold grudges against one another. We just read that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul talks about love. That, that's what he expects from God's people. We are to greet one another warmly, bear with many indiscretions for the good of the body. And very quickly, if I just spend a minute here on the holy kiss, there's nothing magical about that. That's not an ordinance that is commanded like baptism. But do do you know that many, many years ago, back in the, uh, in, um, the Middle Ages, people wanted to make more of the holy kiss than was actually there. Some perverted it. The kiss fell out of favor in the 11th and the 12th centuries because priests in Roman Catholicism wanted to make it sexual. What do you think celibate priests would do with that? And you can use your own imagination. And so it fell out of favor. Now, the word holy here, when it says a holy kiss, that simply means something that's sanctified. It's a way of showing affection among Christians. It doesn't have to be a kiss. In our culture, we don't usually do that. We use a warm handshake. Sometimes it's a hug. And I don't mind when people hug me when they greet me. Some people are just huggers, and that's okay. Now, I might be a little bit careful at times that it's a sanctified hug. I was counseling with a lady a few years ago in my office. And when we were through, she said, will you hug me? And I said, yes, but let's step out in the hall. I'm not going to do it in here. And you can understand why I did that. Don't think I need to explain it. See, when, when you're overwhelmingly attractive like me, everybody wants to hug you. And so that's, that happens. Paul stated the idea very simply in Romans 12. Let love be without dissimulation, that is, without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. He says, don't be a hypocrite. Christians should be kindly disposed to each other and to prefer the company of other Christians. Well, now we come to another thought and another sermon, and I can make a long sermon out of this one. His third plea Is to submit to the scriptures. Verse 27. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Now what's this epistle? Well, that's the letter, isn't it? What is the letter? Well, the letter is the word of God. What appears to be just a simple letter written from one party to another is truly the word of God. It's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by an apostle. So this letter is instruction for the Lord's church. So Paul said, I charge you to read it. Now you see, the letter would have gone to the leader. Paul said, you must read this letter to the entire congregation. I charge you. And the word that we have there in the original language, I charge you, means that you swear an oath to give this to the people. And let me stop there for just a moment. The man in the pulpit is under a solemn oath sworn to God that he will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's what we have in the Scripture. So it's a violation of the Scripture to withhold anything that's in the Word of God, to misuse anything in the Word of God, or to ignore anything in the Word of God, or to change anything in the Word of God. So let's suppose the leader of the church got this letter and he sees that there are some parts of it that could make him more popular if he leaves it out. For instance, look in chapter four and verse number three. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. I can promise you that pastors leave that out all of the time because that's not popular. If I preach that couples are not to live together without marriage, will that make me and the church popular? If I preach that that affair that you have at work is gross sin against God, will that make me popular? If I preach sexual perversion is a deep, disgusting, abominable sin against God, will that make me popular? And so, of course, you know, preachers leave that out all the time. So finally we get to a place where there's no category of sin in the Bible any longer. There isn't any gospel preaching because without sin who needs to be saved from anything? And it's a domino effect. You leave out sin and all the other doctrines in the Word of God will fall behind it. No sin, no wrath. No wrath, no hell. No hell, no need of salvation. No need of salvation, no need of the cross. No need of the cross, no need of Jesus. No need of Jesus, no need of God. No need of God, What does it leave? It leaves me. And so thus the church is about me. So you listen to sermons in many places and what do you find? It's about you, not about God. What does God want you? What does God God do with you? What about your self-esteem? What about who you are? It's nothing about God. So do you see why Paul says, I make you swear to read this letter just as it's written? Don't hold anything back. Tell the people to submit to the authority of this letter because it is the Word of God. And that's what we must do. Every word in the Bible is inspired. Every word came from God. So I'm under the oath to preach it. And when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you took an oath... That he is your Lord and you will obey him. That's lordship salvation. And there isn't any other kind. Now, one last thought. If I said, yesterday I received a letter from God, and I'd like for every member of the church to be here to hear me read this letter that came from God, would you come? What Christian would say, Well, no, no, I've got other things to do. I really don't have time to hear a letter that came from God. Guess what? I have a letter that came from God. And every Sunday, when I get into the pulpit, I read the letter that came from God. I explain the letter that came from God. Why is it that there are so many Christians who don't care... To hear the letter that came from God. What about that oath when you became a Christian? And then you became a member of the church. What has become of your oath? And here's the ending to everything Paul says. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. What better benediction is there for the church? Paul's final plea goes up to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you amen. We are what we are because of the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you for your word. Thanking you, Lord, for the truths that we learn from these pleas from the apostle. Lord, I I pray that our people would be those who pray for the pastor, pray for the welfare and the warfare that we go through. I ask, Lord, that we would be a loving church, a kind church, that we would care about one another as a family. And the Lord, I pray that we would listen to every word that comes from your holy scriptures and that we would obey it and that we would be a sanctified people. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. We pray for if there's anyone here who hasn't received Jesus Christ as Savior. um, Maybe these things fall on ears that really have no understanding. So, Lord, we pray that you would open up the heart to the gospel Of Jesus Christ. We pray Lord you'd save some soul today. But then Lord we expect that among. In this congregation I know just about everybody. And we know that just about everyone here. Professes to know you as Savior. Lord I pray that we would live that way. We would be consecrated. Sanctified. Be the Christians that we should be. Every single day of our lives. Stand up for Jesus Christ. Bless our church. Be with our people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally,